Good morning, North Boulevard. Glad you're here, West Campus. We're glad that you're with us, those of you who are online. Welcome to North Boulevard and Second Service. I just didn't quite have what it took to stay with you uh, all day this morning. So you're listening to a sermon I preached at 8 o'clock this morning because I didn't want to miss being with you, but also just having a few struggles with the uh, therapy for the treatment. Now, I've done my best not to let Sunday services become in any way about my diagnosis and all that. But I do want to give you an update this morning because something kind of cool has happened. First, the irritating part, uh, the immunotherapy uh, appears to be working really well, but it's just whack-a-mole every time I take a, a uh, drip. It's an it's, it's a IV. Some new thing develops, and then when we treat it, something develops from that, and then you have to treat that, and then something else develops. And uh, it's just kind of been a tricky weekend. And so uh, probably that's why I'm not with you at second service. I just don't think I'm going to be able to hang in there with uh, North Boulevard all day today. So that's kind of the bad news. The good news is uh, the cough, which I've had for nine months, which we don't think is connected to the cancer. You remember I have stage four renal cancer. As far as we can tell, the only place it has spread is into my lungs. And there are several nodules in the lungs that are cancerous. One fairly large one that was already taken out when they took part of my right lung. Well, we went in to do some, get a CT on the, um, on the cough. And the CT also showed some of the nodules and the cool thing is the two largest tumors have disappeared from my lungs. And about, uh, yeah, thank you for that. We got, we probably have 20 doctors here at North Boulevard, at least that many MDs. And I will tell you that the immunotherapy, you know, it's, it's relatively new. They told me when I went in, it's a 60% chance of it working for two years. And typically it stops the growth. My tumors are very fast growing. Um, for that reason, really dangerous tumors but that it rarely will simply remove them. But the two ones that we're most concerned about, there's no evidence they're there. And there were about half a dozen other ones that were really small, a couple of millimeters. They're either the same size or they too have disappeared. So it's worth it, I think, but it means that you have to listen to me with a real foggy head. And, um, and one other thing, like I'm just gonna keep saying this because y'all for 25 years, you've watched my weight go up and down. I'm taking prednisone and I've gained 15 pounds in the last three weeks. Believe me when I tell you, I'm not eating as much as I look like I'm eating. Thank you for that. <laughs> I'm really not. So I begged them to take me off because I have, I've got hives all over me from the immunotherapy, which is usually a good sign. And I said, I'd rather have the hives than the 15 pounds. And my oncologist said, mm, no, we're going we're gonna to keep doing this. This is good for your internal organs. So, and I have to say one other thing because I'm not going to keep doing this. Boy, I love our medical system. I really do. And every time we check in with somebody, I just think, what a blessing. What a blessing. The people who've cared for us, what a blessing. You guys who work in the medical field, you're awesome people. And a lot of us, a lot of us really appreciate you. So I, I do. It's just profound how much gratitude I have for that. Okay, enough of that. Sorry to take you down that road for just a moment. But it was really good news to get this scan, which we weren't even supposed to get. And then to discover that uh, several of the most concerning tumors are just not there. So how about that? Yeah, thank you for that. Well, right after fighting in one of Europe's many wars in the 17th century, a young man by the name of Nicholas Herman decided to go to a monastery in Paris. That sounds odd to us, but it was actually a pretty good option for a lot of individuals in medieval Europe because work wasn't very easy to find, if most of them didn't have property, it wasn't an upward, upwardly mobile society. And so he decides to go to this monastery. Well, 
he was not a priest and he had not been to theology school, so he was unable to go as a, one of the brothers. Instead, he simply had to go as a hired hand. They hired him to do cleanup. He was a janitor. When he went into the monastery, he was assigned the kitchen, but also several other janitorial responsibilities. And for the next 60 years of his life, that's what he did. He never was actually promoted beyond janitor. Uh, he cleaned the kitchen for the rest of his life. But over the course of those years, he came to develop such an intimate relationship with God that he's now become a legend for a lot of us. If you know him, you know him by the name of Brother Lawrence. That's the name he took when he went into the monastery. He, as soon as he went in, began to ask God, will you develop a very close relationship with me? He says, it took 10 years. And he said, I couldn't feel anything. And finally, he said, I, I just gave up and said, Lord, if you want this kind of relationship with me, you're going to have to do it. I can't get there. And he said, it was almost as though a miracle occurred that day. God said, now you're where I want you to be. And so for the rest of his life, Brother Lawrence had such a rich spirituality that people would come from all over Europe just to talk with him and ask him, the janitor, ask him, how did you become so close to God? When he died, several of his letters and some of his notes were collected and put together in a book, which you may have seen, The Practice of the Presence of God. One of the things that Brother Lawrence says that I think is really helpful for us on a day like Labor Day is that he was able to find intimacy with God even in his very ordinary work. That is, he didn't have to be a priest in order to find a relationship with God. He could find a relationship with God even as a janitor, as a man who cleaned up after others when they had eaten, and as a man who peeled potatoes for a living. He was able to find a very intimate relationship with God. He said on one occasion, it's not needful that we should have great things to do, he means in our jobs. We can do little things for God. When I turn a cake that's frying on the pan, I do it for the love of God. And that done, if there's nothing else to do, I fall down and worship God, who has given me the grace to do that cake. I rise happier than a king. It's enough for me, he said, to pick up a straw from the ground out of the love of God. When Brother Lawrence makes these statements, he's reminding us that regardless of the work you do, whether it's a very high-paid job you have or what we might call a very ordinary job, for those of us who believe in Jesus, we can actually find deep spiritual meaning in all good work. And that's what I want to encourage you to do in today's lesson. I have two little short sort of commercials, if you will, before we start. The first one is next week, God willing, I'm starting a series on angels and demons and all things spiritual. Part of that sermon series is learning to think about things many of us have not actively thought about before. So here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you starting next Sunday night to join a small group if you're not in one. All, all I'm asking is make an eight-week commitment. If you don't like it, drop out after eight weeks. You can tell everybody, I'm just doing this for eight weeks. If you don't know a small group at West Campus, Debbie Mankin can point you into a small group at this campus, at East Campus. A Trish Waldron can do it. But small group is where you're going to get to talk out some of the things that we're going to discuss in the sermons. And I do think there are going to be some very challenging things that we bring up. And you're going to want some place where you can talk it out with others. So the small group lessons will synchronize with the Sunday sermons. You need a small group. So will you join one? 
This is one of the pushes for the fall is that we get everyone in a small group, start next week. If nothing else, call four or five of your best friends and say, hey, David challenged us to do this. Will you come to my house for the next eight weeks? And then we'll stop at the end of the eight weeks. You know what I predict? You won't stop because you'll decide how much you love it. Let's talk about thinking like a Christian. And I want to remind you on Labor Day that it's very important that we remember that for Christians, we actually have a vocational view of work. The word vocation means you've been called to something. This is actually one of the beauties of the Christian faith. Up until especially the Reformation, much of the world thought of work as kind of a curse. You have to work. That work is something that you, know, you just have to do in order to survive, in order to care for your family. But in the Christian view, work is actually a sacred calling. Work is one of the ways that we live out who it is to be a follower of Jesus. Work is not, uh, it's not secondary to the Christian faith. It's integral to the Christian faith. As Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So a synopsis of the Christian view of work is simply this, all good work provides me with an opportunity to become more like Jesus, and for that reason, I want to look for satisfaction in my job, no matter what it is. It's interesting that in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon the wise man actually talks about two different attitudes towards work. I'm just looking at my slide and noticing that there's a D over here. I have no idea where that came from. <laughs> it just caught my attention. And it appears because I can see what's coming next, it appears the D might just stay there for the rest of the sermon that Solomon has two different attitudes towards work, and, and one of them is a very, uh, sort of a very calming attitude, and one of them is just a really cynical attitude. So, he has surveyed, he says, all of humanity, this wise man has. And he says in chapter 5 and verse 18, this is what I've observed to be good, that it's appropriate for a person to eat, drink, and find satisfaction in their work. This is your lot. So, on the one hand, Solomon says, I've observed that it's a, real, it's a real gift from God. It's a real blessing when you can just enjoy your job. And the same Solomon says back in chapter 2, he says, I built houses, I went to school, I had a lot of wives, I built palaces, I established cities. And the same Solomon says, but when I surveyed all that my hands had done, all the toil had to achieve, it was all vanity to me. It was a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained, he said, under the sun. What I would suggest is happening in this text is that Solomon is demonstrating to us an old truth. It's not the direction of the wind that determines where you go. It is instead how you set your sails. The same wind that can blow one ship eastward, if the sails are set right, will blow the other ship westward. It all depends on the attitude you take into it. Drew Carey once made the remark, so you hate your job? This wouldn't apply to us as Christians, but he says, so you hate your job? There's a club for that. It's called Everybody, and they meet every week down at the bar. You wouldn't do that, of course. But what he is arguing is that a lot of us just have a bad attitude about work. And here on Labor Day, we need to understand that work is not a curse. Work is a gift from God. And that's especially important. You realize how much time you're going to give to your work. 
If you include our dress time and our drive time, the average American spends more than 10 hours a day involved in work. At the end of your life, if you start working at age 22 and you work until retirement at age 67, you will have worked 115,000 hours. And for that reason, you ought to cultivate an enjoyment of work. You ought to be able to find satisfaction in work. And in fact, that's what the text I've chosen today demonstrates out of Genesis chapter 2. I won't spend a whole lot of time in it, but I want you to see that all the way back to paradise, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, we were designed to work. Here's the short version of the story beginning at verse 7 of chapter 2, the book of Genesis. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into him the nostrils, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now, the Lord had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. There he put the man he had formed. And I'm skipping a few verses here because I want to get to the point, the point of this lesson. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, that were good for food. In the middle of the garden was a tree of life and the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil. And here's my verse, 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. There are a few simple truths that emerge from this text and one other text I want to look at in just a second. The first simple truth is that we were created for work. Work is a gift from God. That Adam and Eve were taught to work even before the fall of humanity. Let me put it as clearly as I can. There's something that we humans miss when we're not working. We have a genetic disposition to be productive towards something. That there's something about being human that says, I want to accomplish something. I want satisfaction. I want to know that I did something that's worthwhile. That comes through work. And by the way, one reason why I think there's one reason. I don't know how big the reason is. But one reason why there's so much despair in the U.S. is because we have an unhealthy view of work. That we have a lot of people who never learn to work. They, ne they don't keep their jobs. You know, they work six or seven weeks here and there. They move on to this or that. I was talking the other day to someone who worked for one of the temporary companies that supply temp workers. They supplied workers for Amazon. And he made, the re he made the remark, excuse me just a second. He made the remark that if he has to fill uh, 10 Amazon employees, let's say this coming Tuesday, he said, in order to do that, I will have to call a hundred people. A hundred people will say yes. And he says, I'll get 10 of them to show up. 90% won't show up. Now, I'm not trying to knock the average guy. I'm not trying to go off on people. But I'm telling you that when, when a culture develops that kind of attitude towards work, we're the ones who lose because we're designed to find joy in work. We're designed to find meaning in work. We're designed to have work that we can sort of look at and say, you know, I I'm worth something. When I was younger, one of the uh, kids had a, a class. They were talk talking about self-esteem in the class, and they had these cans, and it said on there, I can, and it was an idea about how to develop self-esteem, which I'm, I'm happy. I'm glad they did it. But I was just thinking, even better than that is to accomplish something. When you accomplish something, you think to yourself, you know, this is worth it. So from the beginning, we're taught that to be human is to learn how to work and to find pleasure in work. And I want to make sure that you understand, not only do we work, but in Genesis chapter 2, we find out God works. 
That work is such a healthy thing that even God does that. The heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God finished from the work he had been doing. On the seventh day, he rested from all his work. So God himself also works. Here's the problem that we have in work. It comes in Genesis chapter 3. So work is a gift from God. But in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve had rebelled against God, and they were thrown out of the garden, thrown out of the presence of God. And having been thrown out of the garden, the Lord says to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit that you were not supposed to eat, I'm paraphrasing, cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil. So what changed? Wasn't that work changed. It was that work now became painful. Painful toil, you will eat food all the days of your life. The ground will produce thorns and thistles. It wasn't that farming was a curse. Farming is a blessing. Ask people who garden. What a blessing gardening is. It's not a curse. The curse is you're constantly fighting thorns and thistles. He says, by the sweat of your brow now, you will eat the food and then return to the ground. So it's sin that makes work hard and painful. Sin that makes that which was once a gift into a painful thing, even though, it, um, even though it still carries a blessing with us. So what I'm trying to argue is this. All of us work. We work at something. The key is not necessarily finding the perfect job. Most of us will go through life without ever finding the perfect job. In fact, when you hear somebody say they have the perfect job, Almost always what they're saying is they have a good attitude. Because there's no job that's perfect. But when someone says, I have the perfect job, it means they've got a good attitude towards their job. may not be they're a perfect person, but they got a good attitude to say that. Because most jobs are not perfect. What needs to be adjusted is not always the job. It's the attitude. To go back to that Ecclesiastes text, that it's good for us to enjoy our food and our drink and to find good healthy work. So, the question I want to deal with for the next few minutes is how do we find joy and satisfaction in our work? And I'm just going to touch on these real quickly. I'm going to start here. Let me say that if your work requires a compromise, don't do it. There are some jobs that Christians just shouldn't do. Jobs that are inherently maladjusted to goodness, jobs that inherently require that you compromise who you are, jobs that produce products that you don't want to be associated with. There are some jobs that we Christians just say, no, we're not going to do that. David Fowler was a state senator for the state of Tennessee, he's an attorney from Chattanooga. Uh, he just started the Family Action Council of Tennessee some years back. I had dinner with uh, David, I don't know when it was, a couple of years ago, four or five years ago, and just asked him how he got into this advocacy ministry for the family in Tennessee. And he said, well, he started out, he was at a big law firm in Cincinnati, had finished his law degree. And they brought him in one time and they said to him, we want to make you a partner of this law firm. But we have some concerns first. And he said, okay. He was really excited about it. They said, the first thing is, you might have put your religion above your job and we want you to think about that. And second, you're going to have to be willing to say no to your family more than you've been willing to say. And Fowler said he went home and he prayed about it. And the next day he came back and he quit his job. He said, those are things I'm not willing to compromise on. And if you ask him today, he's 
a happy guy, has a big ministry, it's a very effective ministry, advocates for that which is good. But this was a case of an individual who had a whole lot of money waiting for him, but he was not willing to make that kind of compromise. So I just want to say up front before we talk about finding satisfaction, if it breaks God's heart, it's not going to satisfy yours. By the way, that applies to a lot of things. America's sexual ethic If your ethic breaks God's heart, it's not going to make your heart happy. If you run away from God, as you go out there on your quest for whatever, authenticity or whatever you want to call it, just remind yourself, if it breaks God's heart, there's no way it's going to make your heart happy. And so we start by just saying we're not going to do work that compromises our good principles. Let me say this, second. One of the ways to adjust your attitude towards work is to understand that every job can be treated as a spiritual gymnasium, a place where you can develop Christian ethics. So I've often thought it odd that we think about work as extraneous to who we are, sometimes at least, and I'm going to become like Jesus somewhere else. The two best places for you to become like Jesus are in your home and at your job. If you can't become like Jesus at your job, I've just got news for you, you're not like Jesus. If you can't learn, let's say, the fruit of the Spirit, If you can't learn joy at your job, well, I got news for you. You're just not like Jesus. The love, if you can't learn to love the people you work with, then who are you going to be able to love? Peace, if you can't find peace at your job, where will you find peace? If you think to yourself, well, I have to go make some quest out to some mountain retreat somewhere and maybe I'll find peace there. If you can't find it right where you are, there's no reason to think you're going to find it out in some mountain somewhere. That is, where we work is God's way of shaping us into His image. So look at it that way. This is where I'm going to learn to be honest, even when it's encouraged to be dishonest. This is where I'm going to learn to love people who are really difficult to love, such as my manager. This is where I'm going to practice the joy of the Lord even when I'm under a lot of stress. I'm going to use my job as a gymnasium to work out my Christian ethics, morals, and Christian values. Number three, see your work as the extension of creation. So, again, I don't want to make services about my health issues. But I think we counted the other day, Julie and I, we've seen 18 different medical doctors in the last six months. And it's really, it's just, I can't talk to you about how much a blessing it's been. But our oncologist, is, she is the kindest. She's got an MD and a PhD. She's board certified renal oncology. She's one of the best in the nation. In fact, when we went to the CDC website to look at renal cancer, she's the author, co-author of one of the articles for the CDC. Um, and she told me, maybe our second visit, I don't remember which visit it was. She leaned forward, she put her hand on my arm, which by the way, in today's world, for you who are doctors, even that's kind of taking a chance, you know, somebody will sue you or get mad at you, um, which is kind of a sad world. She leans forward, she puts her arm, uh, hand on my arm, and she says, I just want you to know, I pray for you by name every day. Okay. If you're a medical doctor, you have no, I tell you, no matter what they tell you, you have no idea what that means to those of us who are suffering. You have no idea what that means. Just before my surgery, Dr. Barocas, 
who is a Johns Hopkins trained uh, surgeon, does uh, urologist surgeon, surgeon does kidneys and all other things, prostates and all that. Just before the surgery came in, going to take out my left kidney and my left adrenal gland. And it was my first big surgery, and I was terrified. I'm sure it was written all over my face. And he leans forward. He puts his hand on my shoulder. He says, I will do my best. Don't worry. Oh, my goodness. You know, if he asked me for the moon, I'd try to catch it for him. And I realized what these guys are trying to do. They're being nice. It's, it's patient-centered care, and that's really important. But I can look in their eyes and see it's more than that, that they actually realize that what they're doing matters. It's an extension of God's created order. And surely after you see, you know, the 30th whining patient like me, you must get tired of it. But they haven't shown that. They're showing an extension that, you know, what we're doing matters. It matters to the life of others. What I want to say, suggest is all of our work does that. All of our work is in some way an extension of God's creation. He, I've picked on him before, and he doesn't know I'm about to pick on him, but at the East Campus, our, one, of our, one of my dear friends and one of our vets, Bob Laylock, I've known Bob for years, 30 years almost, and Bob must be one of the best vets there is. He, by the way, he's on the west side of the county. But I think I know why, because Bob has always viewed his practice as an extension of God's, Bob, I'm getting choked up, an extension of God's created genius. That just as God created these animals, I get to keep that thing going. I get to participate in the created order. And that's, besides the fact he's a brilliant man, that's one of the reasons why he's so good at what he does. But whatever your job is, you can do that. You're participating in, in the creative order of God. You're advancing God's creative genius, his creative instinct. And if you look at it that way, even the smallest of acts, picking up a piece of straw off the floor, is cleaning up God's created order. It's just one more donation to the beauty of this creation. Let's keep going. Use your work to build up others. Y'all may remember a couple of years ago, I think it was just before the pandemic came, Donnie Smith came. Donnie Smith was the CEO of Tyson Food, which uh, at that point employed something in the vicinity of 115,000 people. Massive corporation. He was talking about leadership, and Donnie Smith said that at Tyson, the pyramid model of management worked, if you're talking about management. But he said if you're talking about leadership, it didn't work at all. It's a, it's a terrible model of, man, of uh, leadership. He said he had come to look at leadership this way. Leadership, he says, is like a peach tree. I'm not sure where he got that. But he said the whole point of the root, the trunk, and the limbs of a peach tree is to do what? Is to produce a peach. And he said he had come to look at his employees. They were the peaches. They were the most important ones. His only job was to make sure they had everything they needed to flourish at their job. It stuck with me because what he was arguing is, if you will treat the people with whom you work, if you'll treat them with dignity and with honor, they too will flourish. And we all know this. We know that what makes, for a lot of us at least, a job either good or bad, the same job, is how much we like the people we work with. 
And so one thing that we can do as believers in Jesus is we can create an environment where people are being encouraged and built up. Um, so where are my time? I'm going to run out in a second. But one of the things Julie and I decided early on when we started six months ago this journey, I said, okay, here's the deal. We're going to be cut open, you know, given all kinds of powerful stuff. And, and I said, one thing I'm going to do when I go in is I'm going to be the nicest patient they've ever seen everywhere I go. I send letters. I am like, I want them to fall in love with me. The last thing I want is some medical doctor that I've complained to cutting me open. When I, I mean, we send flowers, no kidding. You're looking for a good patient. I'm the guy. Because there ain't nobody going to be nicer than me. And what I realized is, especially I'll say with everybody, but I'll talk about nurses for a moment. Y'all realize how beat up they are right now? They are so beat up, spread so thin, so much pressure. And just an ounce of kindness goes a great way. There's a teacher shortage in the state of Tennessee. In Rutherford County, there's a teacher shortage. You know how thinly spread our teachers are right now? And how much junk gets thrown on the plate of a school teacher? Like when I was a kid, it was about math and reading. Today, it's every dysfunction in the world gets brought into that classroom. Just a little kindness goes such a great way. If you have a student and your student's acting out, can't you just listen to the teacher a little bit? You know, does it always have to be the teacher's fault? I'm just suggesting that the Christian can make a better world if we'll use our work to build other people up. If we ask the right questions, treat others the way you want to be treated. And then this, be grateful for the provisions that work brings. You know, just be thankful for the fact that whatever you make, you ate. You, every one of you ate this morning, unless you're fasting or you don't like breakfast. You all ate. I mean, it's the wealthiest country in all of human history. Maybe you don't make as much as you want, but I can tell you, some of the unhappiest people I've ever known are the richest people I've ever known. After you have enough to eat and care for your children, after that, after that benchmark is attained, Money has nothing to do with your happiness after that. It really doesn't. Now, I will say, if you don't have the money to feed your children and so forth, that does relate to your happiness. But once you achieve a certain benchmark, a certain level of money, it has nothing to do with happiness after that. So appreciate what God has given you from Ecclesiastes 5 again. When God gives you wealth and possessions, the ability to enjoy them, to accept your lot, to be happy in your toil, this is a gift from God. I mean, when you get a paycheck, just be thankful and realize, you know, I could have lived in a world where I didn't get one. And then, uh, as I say, my time's running out. Never forget to use your resources for the kingdom of God. Back in March, my head is really foggy today. Could have been April. But not long ago, we were asking for $5 million to plant 60,000 churches build a building on the west side of the county, uh, and to launch a couple of new churches domestically in the U.S. By the way, we've already got our next church planter lined up. He's interning with us right now, Kane Atkinson, an awesome church planter. Instead of $5 million, you gave $12 million. And here's what I want to say. When you get a, if, you, if you're getting paid and it's not a whole lot, you really wish you had a raise, you wish you were doing better, you wish you'd done more schooling, whatever it is, will you remind yourself 
that whatever money you gave to the kingdom of God, he will take that thing and he will multiply it by the thousands. So Glenn, who oversees our church planting ministry, told us the other week that we now have planted or partnered with others in the planting of 760 churches. And so whatever you gave, God has taken that. Think of how many souls have been blessed by that. And whenever we plant a church, they start digging wells. They bring in medical teams. They look out for the widow and the orphan. Like all those good things you want to see happen, they happen when someone says, yeah, I'll use some of what God has given me for the sake of the kingdom. Paul puts it this way, command those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides for our enjoyment. And this is the last thing I want to say. Whoever you work with is a potential disciple of Jesus. So you're a missionary where you work, and I'm inviting you to use that relationship for the sake of Jesus. Remember, the person with whom you work, you may be the only witness to Jesus they ever know. So don't be one of those who at the last day they say, why did you never bring that up to me? Why did you never bring it up? And if you're wondering how to get there, I would take whatever job description you have, and I would keep it because someone wrote it for a good reason. But I would also write it from a spiritual standpoint. My job description is, whatever it is, is not just that. But my job description is also to build up everybody who's there. You can write that job description right now. You can sit there and write it right now. My job description is to enjoy that which God has given me in advancing the genius of creation. My job description, you can write this right now. My job description is to look for the joy of the Lord even in the picking up of a piece of trash on the floor. My job description is to enjoy the provisions that God gives me through my work and to share some of that with those who are in need. You can write your own job description and you can write it in such a way that you find great joy in it. And just to go back to that original point that I made, that there are certain simple truths in the Bible about this concept of work, that we're created for work, that God himself works, sin makes work hard, and Christ's work is redeemed. I just want to show you one thing. This will be a surprise. This is the end. Be a surprise to some of you, not everybody. See, already a surprise. <laughs> Do you know that you'll be working at the resurrection? Have you thought about that? See, again, for a long time, we kind of thought you die, your spirit goes and sits on a cloud, and it plays a harp for the rest of eternity. But that's not how the Bible presents the second coming. The Bible presents the second coming as a new creation where everything is restored to the way it once was. We still work, but we just don't have any more thorns and thistles. And this time when you work, you won't have any sweat coming from your brow. I just want to show you a few scriptures that emphasize that. Revelation 22, the angel showed me the river. This is the last vision of heaven. And he says, I see the river coming down from uh, Main Street, from the throne of God. And then he says, no longer will there be any curse. The curse of sweat of the brow, the curse of thorns and thistles, the curse of having to work against something will be replaced with the blessing of fruitfulness. You don't believe that? Isaiah looks down at the resurrection. Here's what he says. They will no longer labor in vain. He doesn't say they'll no longer labor. 
He just says, now your labor won't be empty. Now you won't have children who are doomed for misfortune. In fact, he goes on to say this, at the resurrection, you'll still build houses. Now they just won't be torn up by tornadoes. You'll still plant vineyards. Now you just won't have to fight against all the thorns and the thistles and the heat and whatnot. In these days, you won't have to worry about somebody else eating what you have planted. There'll be an abundance. I want you to see that he's really talking about this second coming as a time where work is given its full meaning again. Amos puts it this way. The days are coming when the reaper will be overtaken by the planter. I, uh, 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 my brain goes to Joe Mays who loved to garden and had the perfect garden. And at the resurrection... It's not that Joe gives up the garden. That was like his biggest thing outside of eldering. It's that he'll have a garden that he never has to weed again. And before he can finish stringing up his tomato plants, he'll be picking them over his shoulder. That the description is not that work is gone, but that work finally gets its full meaning back. That at the resurrection of Jesus, work becomes beautiful yet again. That we will rebuild ruined cities. We will plant vineyards. We will make gardens. Or Revelation 21, the nations will walk by the light of God and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. That is, there'll be all sorts of production, produce at the second coming. And the kings of the earth will bring all of that into heaven's gates itself. So, what I want to say as we end is that work is not only not a curse, it's a blessing, but at the new creation, work will be restored to its richness and its beauty. And so here in this life, we think like Christians, and we look at our work as Christians We look at our work, understanding that there's a great blessing to be had, and so we're going to grab it. And um, we'll stand up and sing. If we can help you in some way, you let us know.